According to St. Luke, the fourth chapter, glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus began to say to all in the synagogue in Nazareth, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. The assembly may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Preaching can be difficult. I'm just going to go ahead and start my sermon by saying it. And that's coming from a person who grew up, believe it or not, really not being keen on public speaking. I know I don't seem to come across too shy about talking in public, but truthfully, growing up in school, I was one of those kids who I would sit there and I would count how many people were sitting in front of me and then count to match the paragraph so that I could rehearse because I was so afraid of misspeaking in the classroom. And, and certainly, I, I remember my first sermon and my first calls, whatever it was, seven plus years ago. And I, I didn't understand fully. The congregation had this sort of thing that they do in the summer where, where people in the, in the congregation, if they had extra garden uh, gifts, would bring them in. So, so I walked in one, my first Sunday, ready to preach my first sermon ever as pastor, and there's a table filled with tomatoes. Okay. So I politely go up to the person sitting at the table, and I said, so what's the deal with the tomatoes? And without skipping a beat, just looks me dead in the eye and said, well, we haven't heard you preach yet, Pastor, have we? Right. Not quite what I was hoping for. And, and, and certainly the truth of the matter is this. I've had a few sermons over the years that are tomato worthy, right? And I say that because I recognize I am my own worst critic. Not my only critic. My lovely wife sometimes, when I ask, of course, is willing to give me some critiques. I'll never forget this, this wedding I did years ago for a mutual friend from college, right? And I truly felt like it was the greatest preaching event of my life. I nailed this wedding sermon, and I needed someone to tell me how good I am, right? And so I asked my wife, I said, Katie, what did you think of the sermon? Right? She looks me dead in the eyes and just goes, too many jokes, to which I thought she was obviously joking, and she wasn't, so she's just obviously wrong, right? That's how that works, right? Never too many jokes. That's just never the case. 
But the truth of the matter is, today, as many bad sermons as I might have preached, or as many times I may have missed the mark, I've never been in a situation quite like Jesus, preaching a sermon so offensive to the audience that they have no choice but to push me over a cliff in response. So I think we need to take a moment and ask ourselves that million-dollar question, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this place? Truthfully, this This lection today is a continuation of the gospel from last Sunday, where Jesus stood up in the midst of the assembly in the temple and read from the scroll of Isaiah 62. And the initial reviews of this sermon were electric. The people were amazed, we're told, amazed at the graciousness with which he preached. And I think they were amazed at those gracious words of who God is, right? giving good news to the poor and release to the captive and, and freedom to the oppressed, the year of the Jubilee being announced again. And yet, we go from that high watermark to a few verses later, hearing how this group is so enraged by what Jesus has to offer that they have no other option than to try to assassinate him, to push him off a cliff. This hometown boy, the very son of Joseph, has offended them. And the question I have to ask this week as a preacher, right, is what changed? How did we get from point A to point B on the brow of the hill? And what's changed, I think, is truth. Or at least the crowd's understanding of truth. Because the truth is, the crowd is familiar with who Jesus is, right? They know him as the son of Joseph. He's returned home to preach this message. And the truth is, the crowd is thrilled because they hear about all these great and gracious things that God is going to do. And they assume, because of the familiarity with Jesus, that that means they're going to be the beneficiaries of these promises that they're going to have exclusive hometown rights to all the awesome things that Jesus is going to do like he's already done in Capernaum. And they're excited about it. But what the truth of the matter is, Jesus' sermon, right, is he sort of unpacks it for them. He reminds them that God shows no partiality when dishing out graciousness. And in fact, if God is going to show partiality, it's not going to be in their favor. Because Jesus is very clear. He shows partiality towards the poor, to the oppressed, to the blind, to the captive, to the other, to the outsider, not to them. And then Jesus even takes it further and says, I'm not the first prophet to ever say things like this. This has a rich history in prophetic proclamation. Look back at Elijah. Elijah lived at a time where there was a famine that lasted over three years. And yet, who did God choose to feed? Not the widows of Israel, but instead some unnamed widow from Zarephath and Sidon. In other words, the other, the outsider. And the same continued with Elisha. Elisha was living at a time when there was an epidemic, of, there was an epidemic in that area of lepers. And who does Elisha go to heal? Elisha doesn't heal all the lepers in Israel, but instead goes to Naaman, a Syrian military officer, to offer cleansing and healing from his malady. What Jesus is saying to this hometown crowd is that you don't have special access to me just because you're familiar with me. 
In other words, God's mission, God's message of grace and love and hope and healing is as much for the outsider as it is for you who intimately know me and my family. And that is a difficult truth because we don't like to share. At least I don't like to share. And when it comes to matters of God's gifts and God's graciousness, you better believe I want to make sure there's enough for me and those that I love. And the truth is we have to learn that God's story doesn't revolve around us and what we need, but instead it revolves around what God is doing around us. Not just for us, but for all of creation. And so on days like this, where I'm tasked with preaching a sermon on a text like this, I have to remind myself of what I do in these moments. And what I do is I always cast myself as the hero in the narrative. I'm the hero in my narrative day in and day out because in my mind, everything I do is always done with the best intentions. Even if someone is mad at me, I always am able to to step back and say, if only they knew what I meant, they would see I was in the right. I try. We all do this, right? We're all the hero in our own narrative. But that means that sometimes we have to realize that my narrative isn't your narrative, that my truth isn't your truth, that truth isn't always universal experience, right? And that leads to some difficult things that we have to hear, like the truth that I am privileged My worldview and my truth is based on the privilege I experience wherever I go in this world. I'm privileged because of my gender. I'm privileged because of the color of my skin, my socioeconomic status. I'm privileged because we live in, let's be honest, a heteronormative society. I walk into the room and I don't have to explain away any of who I am. And as a pastor, I am given authority by just showing up. It's a low bar, but I do it. Right? I mean... Think about it. It's true. And that's why I have to remember my truth isn't universal. That just because that's how I enter the room, that we live in a country that has been built on oppression and that because of the vestiges of systemic racism, my truth isn't universal. And I have to hear that harsh reality. The truth is we live in a very wealthy country. And yet look around at how many working poor we have among us. We don't pay wages that allow people to live, but yet we have other people who can fly out of this solar system whenever they want. That's a hard truth. And I am blessed that I don't have to worry, that I am paid fairly, that I can support my family. And yet, am I ever fully satisfied? No, it's never enough. I always want more, right? That's my truth. And the truth then that I'm getting at is this. As much as I want to be the disciples in this text, right? The ones who are standing with Jesus and standing up for what's right. I am pretty sure that if I heard Jesus preach this message in my hometown, I'd be ready to hurl him off a cliff too. Why? Because his good news doesn't necessarily sound like good news for my privileged and comfortable life. It doesn't match with what I have and experience, right? And so I have a choice to make. Am I going to go then looking for other truths? Gosh, I hope not. I'd be a terrible pastor if I did. 
But instead, maybe what I need to do is start to hear what God's truth means for me and embrace that God's truth isn't always only about me. And that's been true since the beginning. When, when the angels proclaim the birth of the Messiah, they say this. We bring you good news of great joy for all people. To you on today, this day is born the Messiah, the Savior. And Jesus ends his little sermon by saying, and today among you, this prophecy has been fulfilled. A prophecy meant not just for me and my privileged ways, but for all people, particularly the oppressed, particularly the poor, particularly those who need a year of jubilee that they may economically survive under the structures that we built. So our question, our question today, as we hear this gospel, is a very simple question. How do we respond to the truth? And I think we have two examples of where we can go. The first route is that we respond with that initial amazement. Amazement at God's graciousness. What God is able to do in and through us and our shared place in it. And option B is to be enraged. Enraged because the truth isn't exclusively for my benefit and my benefit alone. That's the choice before us. And as we ponder which choice we want to make, I invite you to remember this. That proclamation is difficult. And it's difficult because it requires us to humbly admit that good news isn't always easy news. That's the truth of Christ. Good news isn't always easy news. And we see what that looks like when he suffers and dies on the cross, which is good news for us, but certainly not easy news either. So today, it's a new opportunity for us to be bold in our proclamation, to be bold in saying who Christ is in our lives and recognize that we have a message worth sharing with the world who needs to hear God's love, God's grace again and again and again. So thanks be to God for that good news today and always. Amen.